couple weeks ago, I was at home with my family driving around the town I grew up in, in Connecticut. It's a small suburban town in New England, the northeast of the U.S. It's the type of town where when a new business closes or opens, you notice, especially on Main Street. So I'm driving with my mom past the familiar list of places, the coffee shop, the Indian restaurant, the ice cream place, the deli, and then we get to the very center of Main Street on the town green. Now here, most of the block is the same single-story brick building with a bunch of different shops running along a brick sidewalk. Across the street is the town green with a bright white church and bright white town hall building. It's all very New Englandy. if you're familiar with that area. It's an old American town. Anyway, along that brick building is something you just can't miss. There's a glass door with a big green sign hanging above it, this long rectangle of green. And on that green background are some bright white all capital letters which say 1928 Cocktail Club. Oh, I said to my mom, new place? Yeah, she said, it's a speakeasy. Uh, ma? It's got a giant sign over the door, like right in the center of town, like with bright colors and everything. A speakeasy? Well, yeah, she said. That's what they call it. Oh, have you been? How do you know? I ask. She shrugs. They're always advertising on Instagram. On the show today, a refreshing idea. The speakeasy business. In a world where everybody is so exhausted, chasing traffic and growing followers... A world of endless hype. What if we could do none of that and still thrive? What if we could opt out of that frenzy entirely? Unlike that, uh, speakeasy in my hometown. There's the popular noisy way, but then maybe there's something different. It's offbeat, it's effective, and it's welcome. It's unthinkable. How creators trust themselves, not conventional thinking. I'm Jay Akonzo, and I want more people to make what matters. So every episode, we tell stories of people who make the leap between what best practices say they have to do and what their intuition is urging them to try. We can all choose to do that because, as you'll hear today, it's only unthinkable until you hear their side of the story. And today's story is about, well, a bunch of people, actually. One of the most accepted norms among modern creators and companies seems to be that marketing is about reach. It's about getting in front of the most possible people. Now, if you listen to this show, you know I disagree. Marketing is not about getting in front of people, it's about ensuring they care. The most possible reach isn't actually that useful if you also don't earn trust afterwards. Reach is a stand-in. We hope that by making others aware of us, they care about us. They would like us and trust us, which we need to get anything done for our work at all. But the caring, the liking, the trusting, that is the actual point of marketing. So shouldn't we talk more about how that works? than just how to grow reach? Shouldn't we invest more heavily there? You'd think so. So while everybody else obsesses over reach, obsesses over growing followers and traffic, I wondered, what would it look like to bet your entire business on resonance? 
It is very easy to go out there and talk about the top 10 tips to go dance on TikTok. And it also is very easy to feel like you are busy and doing good marketing if you are Mm. actively filling your channels. Whereas relationship marketing is a little uncomfortable. It is the simple but not easy world. If you're doing it really well, you're having to put yourself out there. That's Michelle Warner. She teaches others about relationship marketing. She's a business coach, a consultant, and an educator who helps her clients, quote, design tiny companies that are built to last. At the core of Michelle's teaching is a central tension between the widely accepted form of marketing, which she calls traffic marketing, and another approach more focused on connecting with others, aka relationships. Traffic marketing tends to be pretty passive. You're posting something on your channel and you are hoping you get blessed by the algorithm gods. Whereas relationship marketing, it requires you to put yourself out there. And so it's really uncomfortable and it's also difficult to teach. And so therefore, the vast majority of the marketing that you see is going to be teaching you how to do traffic marketing. And then that's also easy and it makes you feel good like you're busy and nobody wants to tackle the the relationship side of things. Mm. Mm -hmm. So can you just... Like paint a picture of how active you are on social media right now. I'm not active at all. I'm not paying attention to what my industry is doing. I don't think I've logged into LinkedIn in probably years at this point. And I'm certainly not posting anything proactively on my feeds. But Michelle, you're missing out on a lot of great business because of that. What are you doing? <laughs> That's a great question. I don't think I'm missing out on any business. I might say that Michelle runs a kind of speakeasy business. She doesn't invest in growing tons of reach. But when it comes to her talents, if you know, you know. And you probably love and respect it too, as I do. For whatever the following is worth, there are about five people I turn to for marketing advice at this point in my career, and Michelle's on that list. But before we hear more about her philosophy and why I value it so much, let's go outside our echo chamber about as far as we can go and consider what the extreme alternative to our typical approach might look like. To do that, we're taking a short trip from my home in the Boston area, across the pond, and into a basement in London, because it's there that we find a business called Lounge Bohemia. We're a little cocktail lounge that's like any other cocktail lounge. It's set on 60 square meters, 20 two covers we made it only by appointments where you call in you tell us when you're coming we'll make sure that we have the space for you You then greeted seated to your table you get a jug of water just brought to you and the menu is explained to you this is paul tavarek he's a bartender and the creator and owner of lounge bohemia which he opened in 2007 the bohemia in the name means two things to paul first it's a reference to the region of the czech republic where he's from and second there's the dictionary definition of the word Bohemian. Adjective. Socially unconventional in an artistic way. Paul's got a black, scraggly beard with strands of white running down it. He wears a gray button-down shirt in his avatar online. It's made of faded denim with metal buttons. I don't know, it's more sophisticated than my fashion sense. He looks like what I might describe as shabby chic. Maybe with a couple sprigs of pirate added to the mix and just a dash or two of Mumford and Sons, but uttering the name of a popular band probably wouldn't sit too well with Paul if he heard this description. He's surely going to hate that because Paul does things the unpopular way, which explains his stance on the word most often used to describe lounge bohemia, speakeasy. To be honest, 
when I first heard of, oh, you have a, such a nice speakeasy, it was from a person uh, as a guest, and I had to go and Google it, what he meant by that, because I never opened up a speakeasy. If I will be brutally honest, I would hope and I would love to be known for what we do as opposed to how the people do get here. What they do at Lounge Bohemia, Paul describes as molecular mixology. What it means is we use a various different techniques which are normally used by chefs in preparation of food, in preparation of our cocktails. So in a nutshell, not everything what comes out of the bar comes as a liquid like in any other bar, but it will be solids, foams, smokes, granitas, ices and other different textures. And the menu reflects on the approach, and it's written more like a menu in a restaurant, where you have two different parts to it. You would have a la carte menu, and the second part of our menu is a tasting menu, and it's exactly like a tasting menu in a restaurant, where you spend with us an hour, where you're getting five courses, where each of the course represents different texture, different flavor, and different use technique. We kind of created those originally because the first drink that led to all of that tasting menus took an hour to be created. Hold on, it takes an hour to create one cocktail? I just want to appreciate that, also question that for you, my listener friend. One hour to create a cocktail. However, once you finish the preparation if you do not serve it within the five minutes it's gone it's done and dusted to be honest i couldn't even visualize this drinks that are actually foam a cocktail that takes 60 minutes to make but disappears in a couple what is this place i needed a peek into the customer experience so i turned to a friend of mine who's been there jay klaus jay is someone you might recognize from past episodes of this show or his great podcast creator science here's jay klaus the the other J. You get it. I called the number and I said, hey, I am on our honeymoon. Do you have any space? And the guy said, tonight or tomorrow? And I said, oh, tomorrow. He said, we got you at nine o'clock and like hung up the phone. And that was pretty much it. He just said, yes, tomorrow. Here's the time. Hung up the phone. And so we showed up. We walked into the door, walked downstairs and there we were. There were no windows because it's in a basement, but really cool, like, colors. The environment felt super, super chill. There were books everywhere and magazines and things, very trendy things. My wife went with a tasting menu that was essentially, like, outdoorsy. I took a tasting menu that was, I think it was called East Meets West. They weren't, like, full drinks, you know? It was, like, an ounce to two ounces of drink. And a lot of these things were like wrapped in a gelatin. It was crazy. My personal favorite cocktail actually came after my tasting menu because it was our honeymoon. They agreed to give us some extra tasties. And one of them was called a Berlini, which is a play on a Bellini cocktail. Here's what Paul said about that. There is a classic cocktail which originates in Italy in a little bar called Harry's Bar in Venice. Been made since 1934 there, and it's called Bellini. They gave us gummy bears. And when you bit into the gummy bear, not only did it taste like peach. The bears are jelly-like, so they look like the bears that you would buy in a sweet store. But 
they are fizzy inside because they are made out of Prosecco and you put the bear on your tongue, you slightly squeeze it. The bubbles from the Prosecco comes first and it's followed by the taste of the white peach of the peach beer. I just couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe there was like carbonation inside of this gelatinous solid. I have a huge sweet tooth, so for me, I think every gummy bear should be a Berlini. It's amazing. The thing is, these incredible concoctions are not the most notable thing about Paul's business, at least if you know what this show explores and you know the apparent best practices of running a business today. The whole thing why Lounge Bohemia came out and about was I came very disillusioned from my previous job. I've been working in the uh, hospitality industry for a very long time and in my last job, Essentially, the customer wasn't the priority. The priority was the making the money. What kind of business was it? It was a bar, but basically the, the, the idea of it was well, let's buy cheap booze and sell it for with as much profit as we can uh, with no continuity on uh, the product itself. And I didn't want to do that. That all makes sense. I can relate to wanting to focus on work that feels more fulfilling. And for many of us, that can mean ensuring the customer experience takes priority. So that's what Paul does. He starts Lounge Bohemia and focuses on the customer experience in and of itself, not hyping it, not telling people he does it, just doing it, even from the beginning. I've opened up the bar in a basement because I wasn't rich enough to put it on the ground floor. I didn't put a sign upstairs above the door where one would assume to be a sign, purely because at the same time as I was opening the bar, my upstairs neighbors which is a kebab shop and one day i came to work and there was a sign going across the whole building with the advertising of their business including my own doors so i would have had two options talk to my new neighbors which we didn't establish our friendship yet and telling them that they need to buy a new sign or take it with the fact that there is an awning in between the sign and my front door anyway, so people wouldn't be able to look up and just put the sign behind the door. And that's how that happened, that the bar become with a bar with no sign. When you started this place, like you said, the sign wasn't, there is not like a big neon sign out on the street. You're not on every social network trying to promote yourself and running ads and doing all these things that a lot of restaurants or bars typically do to grow. When you started with that philosophy or ethos, did you get advice to change your ways? Were people worried that you wouldn't succeed or were you supported by those around you? The thought was very simple. It will either make it or won't. The worst come scenario, if it is not going to make it, I will be in debt. The debt wasn't that massive to not to be able to pay it off in the certain years just basically worked that much harder paid off eventually what was more discouraging were the people when they were not really understanding that i wanted to run it my way you can't wear a suit inside why at the time when we've opened we had a sort of a vision of how the place should be run how it should look and what the atmosphere should be what we 
called the city boys were not able to accept that that it's not a place where you can freely slap your waitress on her bum or waving your black amex up in the air and shouting that you want an extra bottle of champagne we thought that restricting just by the default of uh, having no suit policy it will uh, make it easier because those who really want to come and accept the place as is would probably go home and change and those who thinks that money can buy anything would stay further away There also seems to be a little bit of a different, I don't want to say business model necessarily. I don't know if that's the right phrase. Whereas some lounges, even small ones, and of course, larger bars, larger restaurants, larger businesses, thinks about the lowest common denominator. We need more typical customers to come through. What you were saying was 20 people. You have to sit. There's no standing room. You're also getting rid of a certain population, no suits. You're whittling down the total number of people who you might consider customers. Did you consider yourself, we are going to look at a premium type of customer to help complement the typical bar goer? I've never wanted to do that in a fear of losing the diversity of the customer itself. If we do become so premium in terms of money then only a certain type of customers who will be able to afford it would be able then to come which yeah you might be able to stain it so how do so you balance that it's naturally balance itself out because we do not promote it we do not run any promotions or in any ways and and we just hoping that the best ever advertising is a word of a mouth so on the one hand side the people who really really liked would bring like-minded people and that will kind of keeps the ball rolling it's almost like a lot of businesses it feels less scary perhaps to try and grow based on Um, Can I just stop you there in, in, yeah. in one second? Because you constantly saying a thing which I do have a big problem with. Please, yeah. I, I know it sounds a bit weird. The word grow. We are in, in, in a very weird scenario where everyone constantly wants to grow something. Yes. Grow for what? What is the, what, what is the reason? What, what are we trying to achieve here? I used to work with one company as a sort of as an outside person and they would constantly talk about year on year sale and, and this, that and the other. World doesn't work like that, okay? The place were able to accommodate thirty four people, we've now cut it down to twenty two people because we realized that it will make way more sense and give us way more space behind the bar to serve less people and we'll be able to use different techniques and different things. So I technically cut down the amount of a people of one third. I've lost 30% of my business by my own accord. Because life doesn't have to be all about the growth. There's a question that needs to be asked. What are you drinking? No, I'm just kidding. But I hope I get to ask you that Sometime, somewhere in this crazy world in person. No, but the real question that we should be asking more often is, what are we trying to achieve? What are you building? Do you know? You want to grow? Great. 
To what end? Why? And if you do know about growth, about revenue, about what feels like enough or feels like your aspirations, are you matching your marketing to those aims? Because now that we've fully stepped outside our echo chamber, it's a lot easier to look back at our world and see some problems more clearly. The popular approach to marketing, the one that emphasizes so much volume of content, so much chasing of endless traffic or followers, that isn't necessarily the right approach at all. To understand that, we have to go back and hang out with Michelle Warner again. As you heard before, Michelle is a consultant, a coach, and a course creator, but she does not prioritize social media. She doesn't prioritize the hype. Like Paul, she does not do things the popular way. But also like Paul, that just plain works for her. My my business is is overbooked at this point. And that's kind of the point of the whole thing is I think we, we think that we need to post on social media in order to find business, but there are so many other ways. And I think it's showing a little bit of a lack of creativity if you think that you have to be on social media in order to fill your business. So here's the thing. I'll, I'll put on the same voice as, as the initial question to you about mm-hmm. not being on social media much. But Michelle, relationships, they just, they kind of just form, right? Like I can't grow my business predictably through relationships. Or if I tried to commodify my relationships, then it's going to feel icky and they're not going to like that. And I'm going to have an ulterior motive at all times. I get that all the time. And listen, we're all in business. (laughs) And if you are finding collaboration partners, which is one of my favorite ways to run a relationship funnel, this is going to be a win-win, right? We're in business. Like you can have all the friendships that you want, go for it. But if you have a business relationship and you can help each other, then I don't see that as being transactional. When I go in and I teach the audience of one of my friends and that friend's audience therefore gets better results within my friend's program because I came in and contributed something, then that's a huge win to my collaboration partner slash friend. And that does not feel transactional. That feels useful. And then if some of his or her people decide to work with me further, that works too, because it's not competitive. I'm painting with very broad strokes, but there is a tendency or a list of incentives with the traffic-based approach to shout louder, try to coerce more people, slip further towards spam. With the relationship-based approach, I think there's incentives to do the complete opposite, which is to make friends, to help people from a genuine, authentic place, and to grow with others, customers, partners, collaborators, you know, not do marketing to other people. Absolutely. And to be looking at those partnerships as true win-wins and not on the traffic side, we hear about collaborations that are very transactional. And let's just sell this thing together and see how much money we can make. Whereas on the relationship side, you're looking at each other and you're looking at more strategic partnerships and how can you help each other over the long term. I talk about something called having an ideal connection avatar along with having your ideal client avatar and truly understanding who do you want to be connected with that's not going to be your eventual client, but always has access to your client so that you can go borrow their audience, they can come borrow your audience. And over the years, you just repeat, 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 and you're always adding a lot of value to each other. One of my favorite strategic partners actually does high-end sales consulting. So I get in, I'll fix a business that is not growing in the way that it needs to grow, and then they're selling into Fortune 5. They don't know how to go through the sales process. That's not something I do. So I just send them right to her. And it is a beautiful collaboration. She does the same thing. She gets businesses who come to her and say, we need help with sales. And she's like, actually, your business model is a hot mess. I cannot work with you until you get it straightened out with Michelle. And that's just a win-win. Michelle thinks differently than most. That much, hopefully, is clear by now. But I find it 
really refreshing. Like, ah, yes, this. This is giving me language and a smart strategy for things that I just kind of felt or suspected or maybe even did for a while. But I never really tried to put any form to it. But Michelle did. And that's why her approach is so smart and strategic. Because it's one thing to rebel against a system. It's entirely a different matter to create a new system in its place, let alone a system that actually functions. Because as Michelle says, her business is overbooked. She's in demand. It's working. So how did Michelle get to that point anyway? I was a tech startup founder. I had to sell, and my background, by the way, was in traffic funnels and using managing very high volume email lists. And all of a sudden, I had to sell into local governments and nonprofits across the US. They didn't want to talk to me. But what I realized was I had a very interesting competitive advantage in that moment. My company had massive media buzz. We were tied into the um, broadband plan at the time through the Obama years. We had ties into the FCC and the White House, and we were just very innovative company. But I could not make a sale to say, my life at the time. And none of these people would take my call, but I could book any keynote that I wanted at very high profile conferences. And so a little light went off in my head and I said, wait a minute, all of these people think about local governments and nonprofits. They want to tell their story, right? They want to be seen. They don't feel like anybody's seeing them. So I um, started turning down keynotes and asking for a panel instead. And I would call all these folks and ask them to come be on the panel with me, allow them to tell their story. And then guess what? The trust was built, a relationship was built, and they all became my clients. So you were getting keynotes Mm -hmm. and the switch was instead of a keynote, how about a panel? And I can bring with me some of these really great panelists. Was that just like a light bulb went off one day and you're like, oh, I could try that? Or were you like thinking about it and then finally rip the cord? It takes a little courage to say that to someone who wants you to come and give a speech because you then got to put it together and hope these people say yes. Do you remember like the first one you tried? I think my background lent it to it because I had been in nonprofits before. So I kind of knew how they trusted nobody, but always felt like they never heard they had their story told, right? So I knew that going in. And I also knew they were not picking up the phone and I could not figure out a way into them. So I was looking at this pile of assets and I was like, all these these keynotes are doing nothing for me um, and I need to figure out a different way. So it actually felt really low risk to me. And so I would tell the event organizer, listen, I I think our story is better told through inviting other folks to tell their stories and how we're collaborating and partnering. It was an easy sell to the event organizer. And for me, it felt low risk because I think I knew the psychology of the customers and was like, this is kind of my last shot. Let's just see what happens. I've seen this for probably a decade now in content marketing between B2B companies where the marketing team will be writing a blog and they'll ask for quotes from other influencers or experts. And at first blush, you're like, that's similar to what Michelle was doing with the panel, albeit a little bit more distant. It's, you know, maybe an email exchange or whatever, but it's an excuse to reach out to say hello and, and interact with somebody else and support them by saying, we, you know, we'll link to you, we'll showcase some of your expertise, will you share a quote? What I see happening though, if you extrapolate that out, is a hundred people being featured in a roundup post, like literally, I've been a part of these. And I'm like, cool, because I get a backlink, that's fine. But like, I think nothing better about the people doing it. Because it's a transaction. It's right back. It's taking a relationship tactic, and trying to shoehorn it into a traffic funnel. And 
there's just something lost there. You just nailed it because they take that idea where I invited two people to be on a panel with me, paid their travel costs. You don't have to go that dramatic, but I invested in the relationship. And then people did see that start working. All of a sudden, it's anonymous emails that go out to 100 people, Mm -hmm. and there's no relationship built. There's no trust transfer built. When that person features 100 people, their audience doesn't think twice of you because you're just in this midst of this huge line. So of course, nothing happens for you. And yeah, it's not a effective, you really need to put the relationship at the center in order for those to work. Think the same thing, a podcast that asks the same 10 questions of every single guest. I was just going there. It's so hard for me not to rant about this, but I'm glad you you start. You start the ranting. So you first. What do you notice it. with the podcast stuff? With the podcast stuff, it's the same thing. Are you centering the relationship? Or are you centering a transaction of just churning out another show for your own number of hits, right? If you're centering the relationship on both sides, like I listen to your podcast before I come and talk to you. You've done some research on me. We are centering the relationship and making sure we know what we're talking about as opposed to just having a generic set of lists that we're going to run yes. through. You're not going to remember anything that I said, you're going to shoot it out on your feed, get your hits, but nobody's going to remember my answer compared to anyone else's. Exactly. You're trying to be visible to other people instead of being memorable. And I see the mechanics as you mentioned the same 10 questions. Absolutely. I've literally had marketing executives say, we know the podcast isn't that great, and but we're not trying to be NPR. You know, we're just trying to meet the guests. But the things that are good for the audience are also good for the guests. I mean, let me count the ways. One of the best things an interviewer can have said to them in an authentic way is, that's such a great question, right? Well, that's good. gonna get good content for the audience, but you're also impressing and earning trust with the guest, the subject, the final cut, emailing it to them being like, listen, I know you're on a lot of podcasts. This does not sound like any other podcast you've ever been on. Even if you listen for like two minutes, I hope you appreciate what we're trying to do. This is not stuff that can be purchased or transacted. This is all stuff that must be earned. And the audience trust and the trust that the guest has in you, it's all connected. All the talk about productivity and efficiency comes into this as well, because we feel like, oh, we need to be efficient. Let's put out a podcast that is generic in this because it won't take us too much time. Please invest your time, right? Invest your time in folks, because that's going to come back in spades. Efficiency is not efficient if it falls flat. So also in this episode, as I mentioned before we started speaking, Michelle, Paul, the owner of Lounge Bohemia, uh, and he told me he has a no-suit policy for the lounge. And it's one of those things that feels like it could be a gimmick. It could be a it could be a relationship tactic used to drive traffic because, oh, we'll get a bunch of press hits by saying this, right? Or we can post to social media and, and people will rant about it. It's a hot take kind of thing that you might do. But when I talked to him, it was so much more thought out as a useful helpful form of friction to like push away the clientele he didn't want and bring the ones he did want further into his corner into his lounge so we can just use my work if you want because it's a little more universally understood than running a bar especially for listeners to this show but friends who push me to say jay you should like write a ton more twitter threads you should post a lot more basic articles to rank for how-to keywords on search. You should do all these things that play into traffic. You know, take the podcast, create 17 different little assets from the episodes. I've had a, literally a friend say to me, you're too punk rock, Jay. You need to be more pop. And I'm like, I don't, I don't know if that's it. Uh, like, I'm, I'm kind of fine being pop for this audience, popular over here. And not generally, not in the mainstream of my industry, because I know there's more popular ways, generally speaking, to do what I'm doing. That's not what I'm trying to do. So anyways, in my head, I'm like, I'm sort of doing the relationship thing from a 
an emotional standpoint, not the traffic thing, but my ego is always pulling me towards the traffic thing. If you heard me say that as a client, what would you then look at about my business to be like, oh, you really are doing it that way. It's not just something that you say you believe or, oh, you aren't, you're falling victim to your ego. You're, you're following the traffic approach to your detriment. Um, so what, what are you noticing? What are you looking at to ensure that I'm actually doing it the relationship way and not just saying it? I'm looking at what are you selling? And I'm looking at are the leads coming in highly qualified for that? If you're selling something that is higher end, why in the world would you do how-to guides that are going to bring people who aren't ready for you for three years? There's no point to that. I would be asking, what is the point of your podcast? You know, Are you trying to build some relationships with the guests that you bring on? Um, how are you thinking about that mix of, of who's on your podcast? And, and also, how are you using your podcast? Do you expect people to discover you this way? That would be rational. And also, do you expect people to binge on this? I think on your website, you have like the top three podcast episodes and you you use it as the starter's guide to your universe. And that's a really great engagement relationship thing to help bring people into your world. And so those are the types of signals I'm looking for. Do you have your assets lined up with what you're selling? And then are those assets correctly doing the job they're meant to do between awareness engagement sales? Since having this conversation with Michelle a few months ago, I've been really hard at work behind the scenes, rewiring not just my marketing, but also my brain, trying to put into practice what she preaches. My heart has always aligned with everything she's saying, with the relationship form of marketing, with marketing based on resonance, not reach. Of course, of course my heart is there, and my words, absolutely. But are my actions, is my marketing... Turns out, no, no, I let my ego and the culture of the industry that we occupy pull me away from doing what was right, not just for my heart, but also for business. And side note, you should probably make sure those two things are always aligned, just as like a general fulfillment and happiness thing. But anyway, let's walk through what Michelle talks about in brief, using my work as the example. First, what do I sell? Is it a traffic product or a relationship product? Because some people do have traffic products, that's fine. That means they need a high volume of sales, high throughput. They probably charge a low dollar amount and therefore need a high amount of sales. It's a volume game. Lots of people buying something that probably is low priced and maybe even isn't that differentiated. For example, a $50 course on story structure or probably a better example, a $15 download of five popular story structures you could use. There's nothing wrong with offering things like that, but that requires a traffic funnel, especially if that's the core way you make money, not just some lead-in to something a little meatier behind it. Me, I don't offer that. I sell more considered things. Low volumes of sales at higher costs is what I am trying to do. Historically, that means selling keynote speeches and client contracts to brands where I'd make a podcast or consult on one. Today, mainly, my business splits into two revenue streams, memberships into the Creator Kitchen and my one-on-one coaching for business owners and professional creators to help them become more effective storytellers through their projects. These are considered sales. That is, you need to trust me a lot before buying. You're really considering the purchase. The risk of throwing away $50 or $15 on a course, probably a lot lower in your mind than throwing away hundreds or thousands of dollars on something that doesn't work. So you need to trust me a lot before you buy. I sell relationship products, so I need a relationship funnel. Here's what my funnel should look like and increasingly does look like from top to bottom. 
really quickly the action that I'm going through, top, middle, and bottom of the funnel. At the top, I'm evangelizing my ideas, and I'm doing so increasingly away from my owned projects. Second, in the middle, I apply those ideas, and typically I do that on projects that I own. And at the bottom, I empower others to apply my ideas too. So evangelize, apply, and then empower others to apply. Here is what I mean by that. At the top, evangelizing my ideas. Away from my own channels and my own website, I am trying to start a relationship with people like you. That's the strategy. So that means I'm investing more in the following tactics. Guesting on podcasts, doing more collaborations with creators and brands involving my newsletter, my podcast and webinars, and whatever the corresponding project is on their side. Guest blogging, pitching my ideas and stories to write on others' sites. And public speaking, but not the typical form that I used to do. I am a lot more prone to doing a free, especially virtual talk with another organization and waiving my speaker fee if I think there's a high likelihood of what Michelle calls a trust transfer. Because the key question here is not how large somebody else's audience is. That's not what makes them a great top of funnel collaborator in a relationship funnel. Instead, the question is how likely is it that a trust transfer will take place between the audience trusting whoever else I'm showing up with, and then the audience starting to trust me. A podcast is a great example. How invested is the host interviewing me in helping me show up as my best? Or are they just regurgitating the same 10 questions to every guest? Or am I a cog in their machine? So yeah, I want the podcaster to have a relevant audience, people who might eventually want to buy a membership or a coaching package with me. But the real starting point is how invested do they seem in conducting their interviews and ensuring that people enjoy those interviews or at least just find them to begin with? Is there a high likelihood of a trust transfer taking place? The approach here is not to change the amount of content I create. If anything, I could create less and make it better. But the real change at the top of the funnel is the ratio of where that content is published. Instead of typically what I used to do, 100% on my own website, my own projects, my own social profiles, now 80 or 85%, I'm trying to publish elsewhere as a guest, as a collaborator, as a teacher of others' audiences, because that's the point of the top of the funnel in a relationship funnel, a trust transfer, the start of the relationship. All right, quickly now in the middle and the bottom. Remember, the top was about evangelizing my ideas off my platforms. So back on my platforms, if people like how I showed up, say on someone else's podcast, and they come over to my site, come over to my show, what do they find? What is on offer? Well, I have to move from evangelizing ideas to applying them. Of course, there's some of that just for context's sake. And of course, this is a false sense of precision. People don't actually buy in three steps. But Generally speaking, as somebody moves from hearing my ideas and buying into that to being curious enough to spend more time with me, what's on offer there? Typically, marketers will offer some kind of automated 12 email sequence. That's the traffic mentality, but not for me. If the top of the funnel is where you heard me evangelize my ideas on a partner's channel or podcast, then the middle is where you want to see me apply those ideas in a way that's a little deeper and a lot more customized to what you're dealing with. For example, if you heard me tell a story about what it takes to resonate with your content, then 
you can now show up every month on a free roundtable discussion that I'm about to offer everybody and have a Q&A with me, bringing up something specific from your work. And you can see me go beyond the initial ideas, go beyond the stories I tell to try and customize that idea to you. That's in the middle of the funnel, not evangelizing ideas, applying them. By the way, stay tuned to the credits where you can hear what I'm really thinking about when it comes to these free roundtables that Michelle has me trying out. And now at the bottom, this is where you find my products, one-to-one coaching, memberships for you or your team, and corporate engagements. I sell relationship products here, so I need that relationship funnel. I need a lot of trust built up before anybody's going to buy. I've evangelized my ideas. You've experienced me apply them, maybe in a roundtable, maybe on this show. And now I want to empower you to apply these ideas to your work because you're ready, because you're interested. Again, I sell relationship products, so I need a relationship funnel. My marketing has to align with my offerings, regardless of what the typical marketing advice looks like or how attractive big vanity metrics like followers and downloads might seem. By the way, this approach is also very values aligned with how I think. It always has been. The object is to teach, but to spend more time teaching alongside collaborators and partners. As Michelle says, she's not trying to hold you back from creating content. Go be brilliant. And I would add to that, go be brilliant, but with friends. If you want to be churning out content, I always encourage them to take 85% of the content off of your platform. Please create it all. Go be brilliant, but go find other places to distribute it. Whether that's a group of five people or, you know, you can land some media, just get it off of your platform so people don't have to find you there. And that's where I break marketing into three stages, awareness, engagement, sales. People need to know you exist, then they need to like you, then they need to buy something from you. What if we actually did that? What if eight or nine of the next 10 things that you and I each published We're on someone else's site, a guest appearance on a podcast, a guest blog post, a collaborative webinar, a LinkedIn live with another person, a trust transfer, not a social post, not even a blog post on our site, a piece published in partnership for the purposes of, okay, what's another P word? Let's go back to Michelle. Get that awareness off of your plate and onto other platforms. Thanks, Michelle. Get that off your plate and onto other platforms. That's how we're going to publish. Go build those collaborations and take that content there. But then once people have had that experience with you and they've been blown away by your content that's on someone else's platform, they're going to come over to you. They're going to listen to your podcast. They're going to binge on your podcast. That's all the engagement stuff. And that's where they're really going to become loyal to you and start raising their hand. That's where your email list goes. The email is not written to try to hope that people are sharing it and other people are going to find your email. The email is written for everybody who found you from someone else's platform and then came over to you. And so So that's a piece of the relationship that you have to think about is, you know, are you out there meeting people and make sure you're doing that, but then how are you taking care of them once they come into your world so that you can transition them into an opportunity to buy? Oh, I love this so much. What I love about this philosophy is not just that it gives language and an actual strategy to the things that I've felt for a while, that too, for sure, but also... It's that Michelle is describing a means to market your business when you're focused on making things that matter, not just focused on making more stuff, not growth at all costs for all time for reasons. No, making things that matter and marketing accordingly. Because when your work matters more, you need to hype yourself less. 
But this only works if you go all the way. Ask yourself, does your marketing match your mission? Thanks for listening. This episode was written and edited by me with production support from Alana Nevins. Special thanks to Paul, Michelle, and Jay for their creativity and generosity. If you share the show, please remember to thank them too. Also, thanks to Michelle's ideas, I have been overhauling my entire marketing strategy to grow my business because I do offer things that are relationship products, so I need a relationship marketing approach. I need a relationship funnel. I offer coaching one-to-one to help you become an effective storyteller. I also have a membership called Creator Kitchen. This is something that requires you to trust me before you join a membership, quite frankly. So in all of my business, I've been overhauling how I operate, and so here is why this matters to you. Every month, starting in July of 2023, I'm going to be offering a free creator roundtable. That means we're just hanging out with a few other peers, creative people who want to be effective storytellers and are building creative careers. And we're just going to talk shop. It's going to be me and you and a few peers going deeper into the craft with me answering your questions about your work. I'll give a little spiel up front about something I'm thinking about or learning in my work or I'm observing out in the market, and then we'll spend most of our time together talking about your work. If you'd like to join that, I haven't rolled this out officially yet, but you can subscribe to my newsletter and be the first to know when I offer these for free. My newsletter is Playing Favorites. You can find it at jayaconzo.com. So you get two things in that. You get my newsletter and you'll also be the first to know when I start to formalize these free roundtables to talk shop and go deep on the craft driving your actual content. So subscribe to my newsletter at jayaconzo.com and look for the heads up that I'm launching these roundtables officially. We're back with another episode in two weeks, but until then, keep making what matters. See ya. See ya.